and welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology, produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithali Maher, and Matt Barlow. This podcast is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and supported by the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. In this episode, David interviewed three fabulous women anthropologists whose life and work has centred on questions to do with gender, abortion, disability, and the politics of reproduction. Raina Rapp, Faye Ginsberg, and Risa Cromer each reflect on their particular but intersecting histories in feminist science and technology studies. While keeping a firm eye on the activist spheres where they started out, as academics, each have fundamentally shaped the university departments where they've worked. This conversation took place at the 2019 American Anthropological Association meeting in Vancouver. This was a milestone marking 20 years since the publication of Rainer Rapp's Testing Women, Testing the Fetus, and 30 years since Faye Ginsberg's Contested Lives. This warm, meandering conversation takes us through the lives and research of this powerhouse of scholars, reminding us that you don't know what the universe has planned for you. And just before we join the conversation in this hotel room where Raina and Faye were kind enough to invite us, I wanted to say you'll hear Raina first. Uh, if you're listening in stereo, she's panned to the left. You'll hear Faye second, she's in the middle. And you'll hear Risa third, she's on the right. So I was wondering if you could each talk about the moment when you first decided that you were an anthropologist. Raina, I think you should go first. Okay, I'm the oldest here, so I'll start. <laughs> So I went to the University of Michigan at the tender age of 18, expecting that I was going to go into French studies. I was a complete fanatic for French existentialism and French philosophy. And since the university, in its wisdom, had requirements for the first few years of a liberal arts community a degree, I was trying to get my social science requirements out of the way. And I got closed out of everything. I couldn't get into sociology, I couldn't get into psychology, I couldn't get into economics. The only thing open was an anthropology class. So I took it, and the world is what happened to me afterwards. Yeah. But I had a teacher there, and I was giggling in the back of the class one day, and he said, to the young woman in the back of the class, could you please be a little more quiet? There's actually rather a lot to be learned in here. And that was it. I was hooked. <laughs> Turned out it was Eric Wolf, who was my mm -hmm. first undergraduate teacher and became a major influence in my life. And somewhere in the course of that term, I woke up at 18 years of age with absolutely no idea what I was doing in a dormitory room as a freshman at the University of Michigan and looked at my textbook and thought, I can do this. I would like to do this with my life with no understanding of what I was doing, but here I am. It's fantastic. Well, when I was little, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to be an opera singer or a veterinarian. So perhaps anthropology was a good <laughs> meeting point. But um, when I went to college, I was pre-vet, and I also got interested in archaeology, and I ended up majoring in archaeology, mm. and had the opportunity to go to the Aleutian Islands and do excavation there along the Bering Land Bridge, which is 
very exciting archaeologically, but I discovered that I couldn't consume enough alcohol to be an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> a lot goes down out there, and mm. you know, I could describe some of the greater moments. This little group of the four of us dumped on an island where passing research vessels would come by who'd picked up on our conversations requesting toilet paper and vodka from the mainland <laughs> and came to find us and bring, would bring us to their research vessels for entertainment. Anyway, and then I spent about eight years doing activist work in New York City and um, working in the film community and doing some film work. And um, I made a short, I made a, a documentary about the revival of menstrual rituals in a Syrian Jewish community in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. it's, they're called mikveh rituals. Mm -hmm. And people in Melbourne would know about the mikveh. There's certain people. And I heard about an, a French anthropologist and filmmaker na named Jean Rouge who was teaching in the U.S. in that summer, the summer of 78. Mm. And I went and took this uh, crazy, immersive, wild mm. three-week seminar with him and met actually a lot of really important people who have become lifelong friends. And I thought, oh, well, if this is anthropology, I think I could do this. Then ended up going to the Graduate Center where I had decided to put my prior interests together and I was interested in camel women and, and nomadism. And I mm. was particularly taken with camels because I used to work at the Bronx Zoo. So it is a long and crazy story. Mm. And then within about I don't know, six weeks, I think, Raina Rapp came and talked. She gave a talk. She was teaching at the New School, and she gave a talk in what was called the Program Seminar. And it was the first time I heard about feminist anthropology or the kind of work she was doing. And um, shortly after that, Ronald Reagan was elected. Right. And I, it, I kind of decided to, I could give up camels and that I had other things to do, and I decided I really wanted to understand women on the right, and um, I was interested in the contradictions that posed for feminist anthropology. And my first week at graduate school, our department chair, Sidel Silverman, who's recently passed away, said, I hope you all can drive taxis, there are no jobs. So I thought, well, I certainly don't need to get malaria and go to Papua New Guinea if that's the case. I, mm. I'm going to really do this project, which is rather unusual, was very unusual at the time. I actually didn't, I had been making film and doing a lot of political activism. I didn't really think I was necessarily going to go into the field as my lifelong career. I thought I might go back to filmmaking or other things. And I'm happy to say things worked out differently. So that's my story. And so you've both been working together uh, ever so since then. along the way, yes. So mm -hmm. Raina became an outside reader to my dissertation, which was really great. And by that time, we'd become pretty friendly. Friends. Then shortly after that, I became her research subject when she was doing her groundbreaking study of uh, prenatal testing. So as a pregnant person having a test, having mm -hmm. prenatal testing, I uh, was her research subject. <laughs> and we were... Yeah, we were, we were fairly entertaining to the technicians who were doing... Who said, who are you girls, anyway, <laughs> when we kept commenting on the ultrasound and Faye kept saying, oh, I don't want to look at the screen, I might bond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Since we'd read all this literature. And I was like looking at... my Conveniently, my husband was off in Australia doing research right, in so Central Australia. Right, so I was the substitute mm. for the test and I went to hold her hand. And yeah. then, of course, life turned out much more complicated because Faye and Fred's daughter, who 
is their beloved young adult, now turning 31, mm -hmm. um, was born with a very mysterious, hard to diagnose Jewish genetic disease. And so over the course of the next couple of years, I followed along as Faye and Fred figured out what was happening with Samantha and what they could do to support her and what mm. kinds of a life they could make for her. And in the process, we became one another's interlocutors about the relation between the prenatal testing that I had been writing about and gone with Faye to her test for mm. and what it meant to have a child with a disability with no knowledge put into the prenatal testing phase of anything that it meant to live with a condition that was or wasn't diagnosable. Mm. And just to put this in context, by that time I had started teaching at NYU in a, a, actually a very precarious kind of job, which eventually turned into a secure job, Right. fortunately, with really good health insurance. <laughs> Famously, after this, there, was, there were very few tests available, and uh, so what my daughter has familial dysautonomia um, was not even remotely on the horizon of, uh, it was only became a standard of care test in the, about 2003. And Raina asked me, what do you think? And I said, well, I know that there after were- After her prenatal yeah, test. Yes, after mm -hmm. the test, sorry. The her, this is why I was being her, the research subject. And I said, well, I know there were four things that are not wrong. Mm -hmm. And that was actually kind of the right thing to say because you don't have any idea what the universe has for you. Right. Since we're talking about the universe. Yeah, yep. Yeah, so, but it, it fell together. I mean, because by this time, of course, I had finished this major study about how women divide around the abortion debate. So the question of abortion and genetic testing and disability, you know, we started having this set of conversations right. that also started to become emerge in our publishing and then our research. So We were very concerned at that point about what we called the segregation of the social funds of knowledge. That is, you could learn a lot about genetic testing or prenatal care or obstetrics or all the explosion of what would become the kind of high-tech interventions into obstetrical gynecology and especially with the eventual mapping of the genome genetic tests. But there was no relation really between that and what families who lived with people that had some of those conditions which were increasingly diagnosable by prenatal testing, what they knew was not in any way integrated into what the experts explained about prenatal testing. And so we became quite interested in that question and realized that this was not just an individual dilemma for Faye versus my research, mm -hmm. but that it opened up a much larger terrain. Risa and I were both hoping to ask more about collaboration we haven't gotten to hear your uh, introduction yeah. to anthropology story yet, either. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to share it. Do um, it. <laughs> it involves you, too. <laughs> okay. Um, I, too, found anthropology in college. It's where many people encounter it. But by way of women's studies, a class that I also found my way into after leaving a challenging math class. So I found my way into women's and gender studies, created a major out of that, and as it turned out, found my way into anthropology classes. And um, it was through that experience and then doing community organizing afterward in the reproductive rights movement that I became a bit disenchanted with some of the black and white stories about abortion politics and what is and is impossible during the George W. Bush presidency, which did feel a bit then like the sky was falling and those mm -hmm. worlds were 
very simple about what was right and wrong or better. And, um, but the disenchantment drew me toward thinking about expanding the toolkit, I suppose, and what might graduate study do for that. And I found myself reading ethnography, uh, yours, testing women, testing the fetus, celebrating its 20th year, yours, contested lives, um, celebrating its 30th year since publication. And both were <laughs> likely reasons why I found my way to New York, <laughs> um, where mm. I was able to follow in Faye's footsteps and go to CUNY and pursue anthropology, because I th saw it as a place where gender had been centered long ago, Reina editing a foundational text towards the anthropology of women, putting, anthropo putting gender on the radar, essentially helping found one of the first women's studies programs in the country. So there's a long-standing tradition of centering, uh, well, I think of radical work, feminist work and political work that I wanted to be a part of. And grappling with the sincere baggage our discipline has. I thought that researching uh, in the United States on politics concerning reproduction was important, and there were two profound leaders paving the way, and I wanted to go see what I, I might be able to do too. Mm. Uh, well, I'm really grateful to be able to have all three of you in the room. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a pretty intergenerational yeah, conversation. It's a wonderful, mm. Yeah, wonderful way to talk about how things move over time and across generations. Mm. Um, Could I actually add one more thing? Because oh. I have another hat that I wear, which mm -hmm. uh, particularly for our listeners in Australia might be relevant, mm -hmm. um, because I sustained my interest in film and media, and in fact my first job emerged because at uh, New York University, where Annette Wider had recently become chair after the death in prison of the former chair for producing illegal drugs. Just wow. trying to keep the podcast interesting. Right. So uh, maybe the eighth floor or the seventh floor, we're not sure where was it. But in any case, there was a drug laboratory above our... Where illegal drugs were being produced. Wow. Quaaludes and LSD. Anyway, the university decided to hire a nice married woman with children after mm. all the... Who happened to be a brilliant anthropologist, as it were. Genius anthropologist, yeah. So um, anyway, but she also had a very strong commitment to visual anthropology, even though she didn't have any idea what it really was. And she didn't have any money, and I was uh, finishing up graduate student. If she mm. had had more money, she probably would have hired someone like David McDougall from Australia, if she could have, who was very prominent at the mm. time, but she had me. And um, <laughs> so actually my first job was really based on me setting up this program, which mm. I did, and raised money and worked with the Cinema Studies Department, and ended up getting, just because I thought, how do I decolonize this field that has an unfortunate colonial history and um, knew about what was going on in Australia um, with the Walpuri Media Association and um, uh, Ernabella TV and few things in the Central Australia, and um, went out there to learn about those things just to have them as curriculum to say how do we start uh, right. the decolonial curriculum in 1988 and I had met Fred Myers, the anthropologist who was working in Central Australia because he was my colleague at NYU so mm. we <laughs> isn't not Machiavellian we did get together mm -hmm. <laughs> for reasons other than him being my translator um, <laughs> and we went out there in fact when I was pregnant mm. and, uh, and then I got really hooked on how exciting this work was at every level um, just this cultural activism mm -hmm. epistemologically about completely reframing what it could mean to make media in a profoundly different setting than the West uh, had created and um, so that's also been 
that's mm. been a big part of my work. I see them actually as interrelated. But, well, I was going to ask, you know, at first yeah. glance, I think there was probably even a time when I didn't realise they were the same Faye Ginsburg. Uh, oh, no, no, there's, she's my twin. My oh, twin. right, is that how you... Yes, <laughs> yeah, that would be helpful. She's in the closet over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 2019. No one belongs in the closet anymore. <laughs> um... No one belonged in the closet to begin with, but no, never. Uh, yeah. So how, how how do those fit together for you? Well, um, I've always been interested in cultural activism. So activists on both sides of the abortion debate. Mm-hmm. So I I think of cultural activism as people who who may or may not be seen as political activists as well. Some are, some aren't, but who are taking fundamental elements of their cultural worlds and transforming, trying to transform the cultural, very self consciously doing mm. that, but through cultural means possibly in addition to political means, not that politics is not cultural, but, you know, when I was out there at Yundamu in 1988, I was like, I'm seeing very similar kinds of people and transformations taking place, even Mm. though the issues were quite different. So from the point of view, sort of a theoretical project and an interest in the possibility of cultural dynamism, where does that come from? And then it was just really fun to be able to do that work, and I had... The opportunity to bring lots of people over to the U.S. Mm. I started a fellowship program for Indigenous filmmakers, and that came worldwide. People are very happy to come to New York, and we've had um, it's just been an incredibly robust uh, area of work and research. We've had like 15 books and dissertations on Indigenous media from around the world. Very, very important ones. Right. Um, I was just counting last night. I think we've had and we have attracted now. We have had uh, four have completed and four in the pipeline of indigenous students finishing their doctorates. Right. And I think that's the program I was able to establish along with the work of people like Fred Myers or Jane Anderson. So I I feel very uh, honored and proud to have been able to create a space like that. So ironically, Mm -hmm. all the amazing work I've been able to do with Raina and now people like Risa in reproduction has not been what's attracted students to work with me. Mostly it's come because, you know, and I think it's interesting just about the history of the field is like often your first job mm. is far more influential than you can. I mean, you're so desperate to get your first job and hope it's a good one, you know, that you kind of forget how, how much that can shape your career moving forward. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's the background. But the, the great news is that I eventually got Raina to move over from the new school to NYU. Um, <laughs> and after so a lot of like behind the scenes rope pulling um, but we've continued to work together since then. So I was mm-hmm. very, my first job was at the graduate faculty of the new school and I was 27 years old and had no idea what I was doing and almost all of my graduate students because it was exclusively a graduate teaching position were way older than me and it was an extraordinary job that really kind of made me who I was and gave me a lot of access and absolute imperatives that I had to understand social theory at a deeper level. It was all in many ways intellectually very stimulating, but a difficult, difficult institutional environment, very under-resourced. And one of the things that happened to me there was that there was no history department really to speak of until much later, and even then it wasn't much of a history department, and there was certainly no science. So when I started to work on reproductive technology and genetic testing, in a way there was nobody to stop me 
I think if I'd been in a more conventional <laughs> department, people would have mm. said, are you fucking out of your mind? <laughs> you can't do that. You're not a scientist, and you're not an, a trained MD, and what the hell do you think you're doing? Mm. But I kind of just wandered in on the basis of my own experiences, having gone through and mm. sustained my own pregnancies and mm. use of this technology and followed it to its conclusion. Mm. I just started doing this kind of work, and that was a really important part of how I started to think of my own background in women's health activism mm. where I had been pretty involved as an undergraduate and graduate student as the women's second wave feminism hit and we all became very militant about women's bodies ourselves you know our bodies mm. our bodies our smells <laughs> and as we, we affectionately call them right, right, right. <laughs> So I just went about my business and did all of that. And along the way, as Faye said, you know, we encountered each other and got to work. But meanwhile, that intersection of science studies, as it turned out, it had a name, although it was just mm. getting a name at the time I was starting. And a kind of feminist medical anthropology just made total sense to me as one of those places with theory practice where community mm. background and commitments came together with scholarly research which may or may not have been in tension with what you hope to be able to accomplish at the level of intervention but nonetheless you could live and tread water in that kind of set of contradictory places mm. of what they taught me to call cultural activism mm. so we were all kind of part of that heady brew and Fay and I often talked about what it would be like if we worked together more Closely, we had by that time started writing some things together. We did an annual review piece mm -hmm. together on the politics of reproduction mm -hmm. and eventually did a Winogren conference that became a book as well, Conceiving the New World Order. And mm -hmm. so we had been working together. And then a bunch By the of way, we borrowed that name from George Bush. But, yeah, well, <laughs> we but gave it a different spin. Yeah. 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 The new world One of the great feminists yeah. of the, we of the 1990s and yeah. 2000s. <laughs> right, we were going to conceive it differently than he mm. was. And eventually a job opened up there and there had been all these limits and checks put on the work of establishing a gender studies program at the graduate faculty where the president of the university in a phenomenal slip of tongue when I went to talk to him about resources called it Amazon Studies and Terrorist Theory for Gender Studies and <laughs> Feminist Theory. <laughs> so I knew my days at the New School were kind of numbered. And then mm. Faye, I've never heard that story. Though. Faye and others opened mm. up this door, and with some reluctance, I just walked through, and it turned out life was much better at NYU for me. Mm. I mean, and we had by this time had a psychotic. They only had a psychotic chair who was replaced by a really nice, brilliant, yes, feminist dancer. Under, under Ned, and then Fred Myers became chair. Yeah, so we right. so NYU had so hit rock bottom when our chair went to jail. I was not there yet. Men, mm. Almost none of the faculty here. And there were fistfights in the halls. I mean, and people would invade each other's offices and throw their things on the floor. And that people, like the best part is that another anthropologist realized that weird shit was going down in this guy's lab and went to the FBI and he wore a wire for a year. You can't get worse than that. I mean, so when you hit rock bottom, <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, like there's certain departments that re are famously reproducing their kind of slightly toxic but not terrible cultures. Mm -hmm. So after that, it was like this, you know, 
what's the bird that um the one that rises from the phoenix yeah, was rising yeah, yeah, from yeah. the ashes and so it's like okay we have to really get along mm. so it was a very different department at that time was it sort of rebuilt from the bottom up then yeah basically yeah it had been really bad the people there were a few like walking wounded from the older days i mean wonderful scholars and fantastic people but uh, basically, but Yanush had been so vicious to people he didn't like or mm. he felt was in somehow getting in his way. So, you know, it was feminist also. I mean, so the mm. degree to which it was a pre-feminist moment and he dominated the department. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Just, and we've just, the book mm-hmm. recently came out, so many of us eagerly read the details that we couldn't remember. And right, so this is all on record, so this podcast won't it, be breaking will, news. Yeah, you won't be breaking news, <laughs> although a lot of people don't know this story. Mm. About but the it mad is, professor. The mad professor. It's called the mad professor, mm. yeah. It, anyway, but it is fun. Like, when, when I'm on committees, mm-hmm. you know, people are saying, oh, this department, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nobody gets worse than us. And they're like, what? I'm like, did your chair go to federal prison? And they're like, mm. no, and sadly, he died of AIDS in prison. Right. Really just back That's, to that. Yeah, yeah. Back to the story. But in any case, it was, it was wonderful. So when Raina, by the time Raina joined us, we had gender studies properly at the university. Mm. And not only that, but I was trained in four fields, basic anthropology, biological, archaeological, linguistic, as well as cultural. And they wanted me to do that. I was trained, like I said, there was no science at the graduate faculty. And here there were science-oriented anthropologists in essentially bio- biological anthropology who were eager to team teach and that was one of the things that was such a draw for me for the first many years I was there I taught a core course with a molecular anthropologist and we talked about race and reproduction and all sorts of stuff in which he would provide the technical critique of race and I would talk about everything from genetic disease Mm. to racial health disparities and it was a very exciting moment it mixed the students up from those different parts of the, right. the four fields and they like the cultural students would have to sequence DNA right and the other students would realize have like, to actually they would all go yes. Michel Foucault oh no <laughs> <laughs> well, is, was there something about that moment that was and this is sort of a question for all three of you was there something about that moment that was more open-ended than maybe what feminist STS might you know having sort of developed uh, a more canonical set of approaches might be now if you were sort of in the process of inventing feminist SES at the time you know what sort of well, differences so are there one story and then in a way I want to turn it over to Risa because you grew up with this already as a project and for us it wasn't yet a project um, in the 4S the social studies of science um, meetings they tried to integrate the anthropologists and they also tried to integrate some amount of feminism and there was a fair amount of resistance I would say in the mid to late 90s and then an anthropologist named Linda Lane kind of became the program chair for one set of meetings and she was at Rensselaer Polytech which is an engineering school teaching science studies which with an anthropological background which of course if you think about the origin of science studies in say the UK that sense of the two cultures and having to have kind of some liberal arts qualitative stuff going on in engineering school that was her background and she just brought in a boatload of feminist anthropologists and we just kind of said hey this is what science is and these are some other questions meanwhile there was a kind of rump rebellion on the part of the sociologists and the engineering people and all the activist feminists within 
4S, and they started a Lysistrata moment in which they got up and basically said, from here on in, we're only citing women because you goddamn never cite women. <laughs> so instead of citing mm -hmm. Karl Marx, we will cite Donna Haraway mm -hmm. on Karl Marx. Mm -hmm. It was an extremely effective strategy, and within a few months, the whole sort of orientation, the editorial boards on the journals, all the rest of it, people were much more open. So mm. we, the anthropologists, were just a little piece through Linda Lane. I think we were like one of the many, you know, tools that were being kind of mobilized to try to change that field in its origins and right. make a space for feminist thought. So, so what was it like growing up when there already was <laughs> sort of feminist science studies? It's a great question. In fact, my training at CUNY was wonderful. So STS was not a core part of what I learned at CUNY. It was material that I encountered on my own because of, by virtue of my interests, I sought scholarship that opened up questions for me and probably by virtue of my political orientations and investment in feminist scholarship and theory, period, I gravitated toward the feminist science technology studies scholarship. Donna Haraway I learned in undergrad school and then mm -hmm. found her again and being cited in um, feminist STS work. Uh, so that was became a, a part of, I don't know, that, that ad, ad hoc way one builds a framework or multiple frameworks for apprehending social problems. Um, that was part of the education I did outside the classroom. Um, but began identifying as a feminist science and technology studies scholar, which feels like a move, um, in addition to being a feminist medical anthropologist and cultural anthropologist. Um, but felt more comfortable doing so once I started engaging in societies like 4S and found there, a, one, the anthropologists are not overrepresented, over but well represented. Mm -hmm. um, so there's something about anthropology that w w makes us inquisitive about the production of knowledge and expertise, systems, uh, power, and science, technology, and medicine are sites where that, th that occurs in impactful ways. So it made sense to me that there would be a number of other interlocutors from anthropology there to engage. Uh, among feminists, this work is ongoing. So this moment, the, mm -hmm. the Lysistrata moment that you mentioned feels to me uh, wonderful because I'm sort of seeing some of the benefits of that catalyst as a new feminist science mm -hmm. studies journal that mm -hmm. a number of scholars I'm thinking here, Michelle Murphy among others, have really helped make possible through a lot of under-recognized labor, but it's a place and home for feminist SDS to exist and for mentorship for young thinkers to get publications and reviews. Uh, queer STS, decolonizing STS, Global South STS, there are a number of groupings west within this circle mm. of um, scholars who come together every year that I find um, generative and inspiring. So it's a place I like to go now in addition to anthropology spaces because it disturbs what we think we know, um, which is also mm. why I enjoy anthropology, but in a very different register. But when I started my first job now, um, about three three minutes in, three months into my first job at <laughs> Purdue University, which is also a very STEM-heavy um, university, so I'm curious to look back on the ways in which it will be formative for me. I'm struck by the STS scholars that have gravitated there. It's by virtue of being in an engineering strong school, 
we engage, we want to engage with students and meet them where they are. So sort of disturbing what they think they know about innovation or infrastructure or expertise is mm. a good entry point to bringing them in. But I'm finding that not everyone who does STS is feminist and that in fact I struggle sometimes <laughs> yeah. to even talk with the fellow SDS scholars yeah who don't have the F in <laughs> front of their work so it's quite a big domain of people I think many of whom feel like interlopers everyone's like I kind mm. of do STS or I, I, I'm, an, I'm an outsider but I'm here because I think so many people and SDS say that because there's no disciplinary aspect to it. There's no canon yet, but I think the works that, I think the citational practices might begin to mm -hmm. suggest that we have four mothers, four fathers, and four thinkers that have given us platforms and foundations upon which to think about new sets of problems like artificial intelligence and big data are swirling everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's like we certainly have people to think with who put gender, for example, as a category in a classificatory system on our radar to begin with? Who made it possible for us to think about gender? Are the mm. same people who make it possible for us to think about the formation of intelligence in these big systematic ways? So um, I think feminist SDS scholars are helping thread that line, mm. most compellingly anyway for me. Another road we've gone down is... I was about to say, but you say it first. <laughs> yeah. uh, disability studies partially mm -hmm. because of all the questions that emerged around. And STS disability study intersection is a very lively place right now, whether you go the cyborgian prosthesis route or you go the discrimination exclusion route or you go the what is statistics and what's normal normality route there are lots of pathways in that have made science a kind of object of interrogation from disability studies which is a field as rosemary garland thompson would say emerged it's not an emergent field it's an emerged field and there is hmm. a lot going on in disability studies and faye was a major major activist in forming first a network of disability studies scholars at nyu and then wrestling the university recognition and resources to build a center for the study of disability so hmm. that's been a kind of center 10 15 year center for disability hmm. studies it's been a, like a basically 10 to 15 year project and we just had a celebration of Catalyst's CRIP technoscience issue. Awesome. Right. So it circled me back to right. mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. Risa was saying, yeah, it was a couple of months ago. Yeah, it was last spring. Last spring, yeah. Which is like so lively and so, yeah. I mean, I think just in the spirit of the boundary breaking that mm -hmm. we were, or let's say, finding new areas of work that are a little disruptive and engaging with things that had not been seen as part of the universe that we were meant to study, you know, is very... Well, and that to talk about cultural activism, yeah. there mm. you go again. I mean, disability mm. studies has been a huge site of cultural activism by any of the versions mm -hmm. of yeah. definition that you and others have worked with. Yeah. So Starting it's been very lively to see those connections. Yeah, and this the connection to feminist yeah. science studies is yeah. huge. So, mm -hmm. Huge. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, th this might be a naive question, in fact it's certainly a naive question, I think sometimes those are useful, um, but is there something more fundamental about disability studies that allows it to make different kinds of interventions from some of the other, you know, like decolonizing or feminist interventions? Is there something about the nature of the object of study itself that gives it more a different kind of transformational momentum? Well, I mean, I'll start but just by saying Yes, because the very material conditions of 
everything you do are implicated in ways that um, for many people they've never thought about. So mm -hmm. just let's start with how do you open the door, literally? How do you get people in the classroom, literally? Mm -hmm. Do you have ramps? Do you have appropriate baths? You know, have you thought about who's been missing? You know, and while we're very used to the mantra of mm -hmm. um, gender, race, class, and those all deserve, of course, to be continued, and those are all those all inter profoundly intersectional, mm -hmm. but it's been very illuminating and sometimes dispiriting and shocking to see how difficult it is to bring disability into that lineup. In fact, it often feels like. Uh, please get at the end of the line. Wait your turn. Yeah, wait your, you know, and it, which is really shocking. I mean, Raina and I have found ourselves frequently like we will stop and talk with a very distinguished, amazing, progressive scholar on the street or on campus. And when we were, when we've been working on our book, uh, Disability Worlds, and our colleague will say, oh, what are you working on? And we'll say, we're working on it. And that colleague will then say, oh, isn't it so fantastic? And, you know, I have a, a child who grew up with learning disabilities and la 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 and then like two minutes later we'll say you know it's unbelievable how many students are asking for extended mm -hmm. time on their exams what special the accommodations what are they just like mm -hmm. much too privileged and everybody's kind of and we're like hmm 30 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act those people didn't get to go to college before and she, you know? this person mm -hmm. couldn't see the connection between her first mm -hmm. statement and her second mm -hmm. I would and, say, and that's not an unusual one, but right. I mean, this We've is like had, a profoundly progressive, that, mm -hmm. thoughtful right. activist person. And Definitely like, yeah. somebody who would take the race, class, gender, mm -hmm. d you know, diversity mantle as absolutely her own. You know, I but often then wouldn't necessarily see how this was connected. And we're just yeah. like, do we take this as data, right, or do we, data, data, or do data. we tell her how fucked up she is? Yeah, so no, we're like, we just we'll just take it as data for mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Very kind. Yeah, yeah. But I would say one other thing, just as a friendly amendment to what Faye just said, and that is that I think one of the ways in which disability studies intervenes in STS and almost everywhere else is a profound questioning of normality and of the mind-body split. Mm -hmm. And I think that took a long time, even within disability studies. That is, it started with people who had mobility impairments, sensory impairments, who, if they could literally get in the door, could mm -hmm. do absolutely everything that anybody else could do, intellectually speaking. And to embrace whether it was intellectual disability or the deinstitutionalization of people with what would have been called mental illness or any and that's a, took a little bit more time within disability studies itself, but once it started to happen, that is in some ways the most profound going critique at the moment mm -hmm. of normalization, inclusion, and exclusion. And I think that is a moment within the connection mm -hmm. to STS that asks the STS scholars to re-examine their own assumptions and blinders and limitations. And also because so much of the, so many of the issues of uh, inclusion and exclusion have to do with the materiality of everyday life, the mm -hmm. diagnostic issues, um, right. and the sequelae after that. You know, so that you know, there's no way it can be innocent of that. But Wayne and I continue to be troubled that anthropology, which takes as its object the human species and all its variations. So if you are going to, in fact, if you take that seriously, the one completely universal experience of difference across the species is disability, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. 
dealt with completely differently or in many, you know, in a whole range of ways historically and in the present. And um, we are just shocked at how little traction disability has had in anthropology. I mean, mm. it's getting better. Yeah, but it seems profoundly yeah. weird to us because we, it's we actually been it, taken yeah. up in other places in universities much more rapidly. And in some ways, we're not used to that. We always think of anthropology as a kind of a cutting edge critical theory. We're willing to live with uncertainty, with all these good things that we valorize in terms mm. of trying to understand the range of the human experience. And it's it's been a long haul. We wrote, we've done two review essays for the annual review of anthropology, the first on uh, reproductive politics of reproduction. That one was cited all over the place. We did another chapter more recently on disability in anthropology, barely cited at all within mm. the field. We were shocked, not because we think our work is so great, but because nobody was <laughs> Probably half it the citations board. are mm. from our other yeah. articles. Mm. Right. <laughs> right. It's just, it's crazy how little it's mm. been taken up, and that's not necessarily the case everywhere. Yeah. I mean, we have theories. We don't know. And we'd be really curious, Teresa, to see what you think, because I, you, your work, in a sense, is you know, sort of hovering in that mm. neighborhood. Yeah. Um, I mean, th this is a theory that people have talked about across disability studies, is because it is a form of difference that literally Anybody can, anyone can enter. I mean, literally, all you have to do is trip going out that door mm -hmm. and you have a traumatic brain injury and, you know, you're in the club. You know, there is this uh, kind of anxiety around the instability of the boundaries of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or like, you know, I joined the club when my daughter was born, um, although I'm sure there were other issues. I, you know, like, you know, mm -hmm. where, where do you draw? There's a lot. I think there's just a lot of, you know, anxiety about entering that mm -hmm. identity mm -hmm. because in the end, nobody as uh, the brilliant and disability studies scholar, Elsie Caver, is like, nobody actually really wants to claim mm -hmm. that identity voluntarily. Mm -hmm. It's not. And I also do think back to the mind-body question, we live in a universe in universities which valorizes the mind. And mm -hmm. so the idea of any limitations on your ability to sort of use your intelligence in an uninterrogated way as an entry point to having a successful worldview and life and materiality of conditions, that's very... That's a really hard one for many, many, I would say, academics to take on. And as a side note, how many of us are neurodiverse in ways that we're either not acknowledging or exactly. not diagnosed? Exactly. Absolutely. Well, the very concept of neurodiverse, which we owe to the self-advocacy of people with autism, mm -hmm. you know, that was, I watched it come into a neuroscience lab where nobody talked about neurotypical or neurodiverse until it was out there mm -hmm. in the realm of self-advocacy by people themselves living under that umbrella and finding mm. it useful. But the idea that you could understand science without understanding this anymore, it's really been transformed by the activism of people who live under that label. And that was not even the case maybe 20 years ago. It's pretty recent. Hmm. So. Recent, I had a question we were talking about before we walked up. So we were interested in the kind of traffic between political movements beyond anthropology and the way we have these conversations in anthropology. I was thinking about the question just now because broadly we're interested in the ways in which to some extent, there are conversations that anthropologists haven't had that, are, uh, that we're being informed by from beyond the discipline. And in some ways, we've had these conversations, you know, about the construction of gender or the construction of personhood. In some ways, we've had these conversations decades ago. 
and so there are these sort of complex spaces for traction between what anthropology can can say to the advocacy communities and what advocacy communities can say to anthropology Mm -hmm. does that sound to you like what we've talked about Mm -hmm. you know so i'm wondering what the productive points of traction are there where on either side of that we have something to add for each other a long long time ago when she wrote her first book about the politics of reproduction linda gordon who is a very major american historian said back to all the feminist activists who did all these book parties and lunch because it was all about birth control and abortion and it was really excavating the history of reproduction in American politics from the 19th century. People asked essentially that question and she said, look, I take my questions from the social movements but I have to find my answers in the archive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important guide and I also would say that learning to live with discomfort That is that you know your heart belongs to the activism, but you're not gonna just throw your hat into whatever their analysis is without doing exactly what you are trained to do and have the luxury to do when you get some time Mm. to live and dwell among them. It's, you may be thinking very much about the Mobius strip as we talked about it, but you you don't know where it's gonna come up. That is where you're on the inside and where you're on the outside, like the Mobius strip, mm. until you're in the middle of it, and then you have commitments on both sides. No. Yeah, I, yeah and I, I mean, I certainly agree and was hugely influenced by Linda Gordon's work. I, I feel like the disability stuff is a little different in the sense that because of the sort of impossibility of sidestepping all the embodied, mind-bodied differences that, I mean, it is really different when you enter teaching and think about like just the space of your classroom, both physically and Mm -hmm. in terms of the diversity of people that, you know, like when we taught our first, uh, when we started an undergraduate minor, minor, Mm -hmm. and we, so we, there's three of us that we take turns teaching the core course and, you know, all of a sudden you go in. We can't just one. There's actually four of us. Yeah, there's three disciplines. Yes. We are two tushies with one brain. Right. And um, and then all of a sudden, you know, Chris, like, if it's me, I'm going to include a ton of media, and I helped start a disability film and festival. And I'm going to include a ton of science studies mm-hmm. and medical anthropology. But when you include a lot of uh, media, it's like, yes, you have a blind student in the classroom, and mm-hmm. you need to audio describe. You know, so you're just like, oh, how did I never think about audio describing Mm-hmm. Lips, you know, and uh, you know, just like all the things. So to me, it has the frisson of all good anthropology, which is you like, you know, you have to keep uh, asking questions of, about what the taken for granted mm-hmm. aspects of your world are, and just every time you step in a classroom, you think about that in a new way. And you know, so we we do a monthly seminar with our um, the Disability Studies Network of the university, just so we all keep up. Because in fact, unlike mm-hmm. a lot of other places where disability studies comes out of, well, in the U.S. comes out of mostly uh, liter- literature, humanity, history, and, and ours is heavily media and tech. In fact, mm-hmm. we're the only people in the Faculty of Arts and Science. Well, there's one other person, but yeah. But really, it's much more coming from like our engineering people who have this crazy ability project, and they invent stuff with our occupational therapists. And you know, it's a, it's very, it's such a fantastic learning curve. So we had a blind artist in uh, getting an MA, and she hooks up with the folks in engineering so that when she does her. Um, 
thesis exhibition with disabled artists. All of the visual artworks will be audio described by technology. You know, I mean, just like the the mix up mm. is very robust in, in the way the best of anthropology can be. So for me, I appreciate that. I mean, it's very hard to kind of know when does your work stop? When is your work right. activist or not activist? Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's a really hard question. I mean, I'd be interested what Risa thinks about that. That's a really in your work. work activist, not activist? Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, there's sort of how you got, you know, I mean, I think they're, you know, it's like they're not innocent of certain political mm. commitments, but they're also, we are also really committed to understanding things beyond, as you said, the black and white, mm-hmm. you know, of the certain way things have to get presented to mobilize people. I mean, Mm. now more than ever we see that. Mm. It's a good question. It's one I'm contemplating in new ways and more profoundly as I was conducting research with people who felt very different from me. I felt like an outsider and not being Christian, not having experience in fertility, uh, not identifying as pro-life as many of my interlocutors did. I was doing two things. I was doing what I thought was good anthropology, being trying to be radically curious, listen well, um, pay attention, and also participating in advocacy work at the same time, where much of the work I was doing there was on a talk line with people experiencing pregnancy, parenthood, abortion, and adoption decisions, and cultivating that same skill of being radically curious, suspending my own suppositions about who they are, why they cared about what they cared about, and to wonder more compassionately about that and found that my work I was doing outside of research or outside of the classroom, so to speak, was so compatible with doing my work in the field and with interlocutors um, that I couldn't disentangle them. So Mm -hmm. all through writing, I kept up that advocacy work and, and yet also had this arbitrary line where I was like, well, I'm writing about their worlds and have been a bit cautious about how much of me I should put into my writing about these other worlds. And I, I think that that's where some of the invitations have come. It's like, I want to hear a bit more about what you think about some of these things. And I'm treading cautiously into these waters, realizing that there's so much care, I think, mm-hmm. at these junctures. Clearly, my advocacy work has been informing how I want to be and do anthropology and the questions I gravitate toward and the responsibilities I'd feel toward them, why I did work in the United States rather than in another location that I had cultivated a very profoundly interesting project to me, Hmm. but felt um, I didn't have stakes there. I couldn't be held accountable Hmm. in the same way like I can be held here. So it's taken me some time to find my way. And I'm doing this as we speak, Hmm. um, as I ramp up to writing my first book project and contemplating my next work. I'm in the Midwest. I'm in one of the six most hostile states in the nation mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to abortion rights, let alone curb cuts weren't put into the city I live in until 2016, among other sorts of, and, and certainly the KKK is loud and proud in Indiana. So there are a number of uh, social justice matters in where I live. So what does Midwestern social mm-hmm. justice look like and how does it configure today is a question that phase work essentially has that planted long ago for me, but is seeding new ideas at this moment. And I've been wondering how to also leverage a new position. I'm not a graduate student. I'm a professor at a university that has not given me a mandate, but at least a platform and a, a bit of public funded resources to hire grad students and ask questions and to generate data and stories that maybe it'll be about the self-managed abortion movement 
what motivates mm-hmm. people to terminate pregnancies outside of the clinic in the zone of illegality, but perhaps com- more compatible with their decisions. Perhaps it'll be about stigma. Perhaps it'll be about mm-hmm. something. But disabilities figuring a bit more centrally into mm-hmm. some of my curiosities. Purdue's a great place to think about some of this because it's so STEM heavy that design and design for inclusion and universal design mm-hmm. is on the minds of a lot of students. And actually having taught your piece, Disability World, your mm-hmm. annual review last week in my medical anthropology <gasps> class. Someone so She made people read it. <laughs> oh, I found like the Faye and Raina show mm. my class gets. But um, <laughs> your downloads at, from Purdue will be high. So they, they go right <laughs> to it and download. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they're being exposed yeah. to something that they already know so well. In fact, the reading responses that my 50 students had that week struck me so profoundly mm-hmm. because they were so personal. Every, almost every mm-hmm. student had a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what we This discovered. is what we call the post-ADA generation. Right. They yeah. all went to kindergarten with other kids who had disabilities. Right. And or they themselves so have them, or they're different. sibling, or, right. the, or they have a parent with dementia. But right. like mm-hmm. 1990, ADA passes, so like you have students in your classroom yeah. Who were probably born around 2000, which means yeah. that they ADA, I mean, so their schools were going to be inclusive in a way they, even though legislation was there prior to that, mm-hmm. it, they were going to be inclusive in a way that was part of a whole cultural shift mm-hmm. that didn't exist before. Which is what generates the book that we're working on. Yeah. Exactly but also, but these responses, ADA. which we found mm-hmm. in the yeah, in our level own of students. uptake on it was so, yeah. like, I mean, sir, we're I mean we're different ages, but we grew up both of us in uh, you know. This was a, an mm-hmm. absolutely silenced topic. Mm-hmm. Nobody, you know, right. st- I in my street in South Chicago after my daughter was born, I'm like, asked my parents like, where were all those kids? The species hasn't changed, and they're like, oh, they couldn't go to school. They right. were locked they up, to school. Mm-hmm. or right. if they were Down syndrome, they were told to send them away, which most middle right. class parents did. You know, it's like yeah. they just—they were and disappeared. And if they were in schools, mm-hmm. they were in special ed classes that were highly stigmatized, and we were not deeply segregated. Mm-hmm. We did not see them in the lunchroom. We did not mm-hmm. see them in the gym. We did not see them on the playground. Mm. You know, I did interviews with a mother with a Down syndrome kid for that amniocentesis book, who was just ranting about where were the other parents with Down syndrome kids in the playgrounds? Why was her only her child the only kid with? DS that was there, and mm. I mean that's an ongoing set of struggles that changes radically after the ADA, and it's not like it's so wonderful, but there is much more kind of daily. Well, the existential sea change that Reese is describing is very powerful, and yeah. I mean you're just enough older than them for that to be yeah. like a revelation. Right. You're like, oh my right. gosh, something good is happening mm-hmm. here. Right, mm-hmm. right. exactly. You know, and interesting because disability support cuts across these other ideological right. lines. Right. Mm. It does. Yeah. It does. So it does appeal it to my does. Christian students absolutely as well as does. my, yeah. you know, and all those seventeen states that have tried to outlaw uh, abortion after a specific diagnosis of DS with Down syndrome That's would right. nonetheless get on board with this part of the conversation. Mm. That's right. That's right. I what a want to say thanks to all three of you. It's been an absolute oh. gift to sit and listen. This was a great oh, pleasure. We're really, so yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. Just like a little one-man band here with all this, like <laughs> gear, the whole thing. And I, I just want to say for the listeners, mm-hmm. 
that David looks really great on this couch because we've got argyle <laughs> against oh, a really interesting square patterns, and it just works really She's well. Fade. Give people an audio, a little audio sense of how. We'll include a, a snapshot yeah. for the the listeners yeah. later on. <laughs> You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Camille Daly, Maithli Meher, and Matt Barlow. It's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, you can find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And if you feel like it, you can rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform. <laughs>